0: Pure Nonfiction's coverage during the Sundance Film Festival is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films. The Hollywood Reporter calls The First Wave breathtaking, one of the most important documentaries of all time, Rave's Music City Drive-In. Nominated for Best Documentary Feature by the PGA and winner of IDA's prestigious Per Award, director Matthew Heineman's The First Wave spotlights everyday heroes inside one of New York's hardest hit hospital systems during the first weeks of the pandemic. For your consideration for best documentary feature, The First Wave, now streaming on Hulu. In the Sundance film, The Territory, we watch how Brazilian farmers are taking land from indigenous people and burning the Amazon. I speak to the director, Alex Pritz. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Filmmaker Alex Pritz has notable cinematography credits and now makes his feature directing debut with The Territory. Based in New York City, Alex traveled to Brazil in 2018 to chronicle what was happening in the Amazon rainforest where indigenous tribes are losing territory to settlers who burn the forest and turn it into farmland. Alex gained the help of a local activist named Nadinia, who has deep ties to indigenous communities and appears in the film. Through Nadinia, Alex won the participation of an indigenous community that's desperately trying to defend their land against invaders. We see them elect a young new leader, Bitate, who guides the community to tell their own story with cameras and the internet. Members of the community worked on Alex's film in cinematography and producing roles. But this isn't a one-sided story. Alex also films with the farmers, who want to claim indigenous land with the same settler mentality of an American western. They have an association called Rio Bonita. This all takes place against the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, Whose policies favor the settlers and weaken Brazil's Indigenous Affairs Office. Over the years of Alex's filming, we see the conflict escalate to violence as Bitate's community brace themselves for defense against the invaders and COVID 19. I started by asking Alex how he gained entry to the community.
1: I got interested in this project um, looking at what happened in the United States under Trump um, and his administration. What the effect of that was on areas of conservation, protected lands in the United States, um, and the elections in Brazil follow a runoff process, so you can tell fairly far out who is projected to win and thought you know if bolsonaro ends up taking this election, we know what these kind of authoritarian leading far right presidents do to the environment, and began reaching out to people that were doing really interesting work in those areas who I thought. We're gonna come under a lot of fire in the coming years. And Nadinha was one of the first people I reached out to. She is an amazing person with this gravitational energy um, and sort of the godmother of conservation issues in Hondonia in the Western Amazon. Uh, And so began a conversation with her and our Brazilian producer, Gabriel Ushida, who's really been there since day one. Uh, And Nadinha encouraged me to meet with members of the Urua Wow community. Um, it's a group of 183 people that are defending an area double the size of Puerto Rico, and she's been involved in helping support them for the past 40 years.
0: And when you did meet them, what, you know what was that interaction like, and what did you have to do to win their
1: trust? That was a, a really long, slow process. Um, the Uruguaw community were isolated from the rest of Brazilian society until 1981. Uh, And so when speaking to the elders of this community, uh, describing a documentary film or news advocacy or any of the goals of an impact campaign around the film were uh, foreign, understandably so. Um, And so I really felt, you know, in order to get enthusiastic, uh, free prior and informed consent with, with this group, to even begin to talk about embarking on a film, we had to open up our toolkit and really... Not just talk about what the film was, but show it, um, and so I brought some cameras really early on, and we began some film workshops with members of the community. I feel like there's this there's obviously this incredible narrative power in film to take like a moment from yesterday and a, a moment from tomorrow and turn them into the same scene and If we were going to be entrusted with the responsibility of helping tell their story and their experience in an honest and and just way, I felt like we really needed to do a lot of work to explain what that responsibility looks like in real terms. Um, and so that, that began what is now a, a co-production with the Ururuwau community themselves. So younger members of, of the community really picked up the cameras quickly. They had already begun workshops with drones. And so there was this intuitive sense from younger people like Bitate of what media could do for them. And through those early conversations, grew the, the collaborative nature of this project into something that uh, we feel everybody can look at and say, I feel honestly represented by, by the way this looks on screen.
0: So just, just to clarify, because in the film, we see them grow to be very comfortable and proficient um, with, uh, with cameras. Uh, and, and as you say, drones and, uh, you know, using some of, um, this image capturing technology to, um, to really make their story, uh, heard. So can you clarify for me, like how how much they were already on the road to doing that and, and, and how much your team was facilitating that?
1: Definitely. Um, drones were introduced midway through production through a partnership that Nadinha had created with a larger NGO, um, the period of time that we were filming with them from 2018 to 2021 was a period of huge technological growth for them already. Uh, During that period, when we started filming, there was no internet. There was no cell reception in any of the villages. There are six Uruwa villages. Midway through production, they got internet. And it, it, you know, that obviously changes everything. Um, And so we saw this, this nascent interest in technology and the media from b and the younger members of the community and said they were using it largely for evidentiary purposes themselves, you know, uh, taking a drone, you can get a picture of something in 30 minutes that would have taken two days to go walk and get perhaps, um, you know, an image of deforestation. And they were using that to go to the public ministry and file complaints against these land invasions and deforestation. We said, here's an opportunity to describe what this film would be like. Um, you know, bringing cameras for for self expressive purposes, that then really shifted once COVID hit, and it became this lifeline to continue production during the pandemic when we said, no member of our team is going to step foot in indigenous territory. But prior to that, it was really more about understanding each other and each other's processes. Once COVID hit, it became a bigger part of the actual production model.
0: So I'm sure there are people listening to this who are uh, hearing about bringing this technology to a previously isolated community and bringing the Internet and feeling that those technologies are things that can be incredibly disruptive um, uh, to um, to a community that hasn't had them uh, before. Um, Can you talk about, you know, what you witnessed, how you've thought about your own participation
1: in that? There is this inherent tension in, you know, drones are in some ways uh, tools of the oppressor. You know, they can be used for really nefarious purposes as well, uh, as we all know. Um, And, you know, the extractive processes that it takes to get the cobalt, to get the, you know, and the lithium to to power these drone batteries. And Mm -hmm. there's there's tensions throughout all of this, Um, but the Uruwau community themselves have expressed this desire to use technology and media to uh, advance and amplify their own calls to the rest of the world. And so we felt that it was part of our responsibility to help support that.
0: Um, So the film crew includes members of uh, the community as the cinematographer, as executive uh, producers. Can you talk more about how that collaboration worked?
1: Yeah. Um, when COVID hit, uh, we said, you know, we, we were asked by the indigenous community to not enter their territory. And of course, we respected that. Their was, uh, After the first contact with the Brazilian state in 1981, more than half of the Uruguay died from measles and tuberculosis and several other infectious diseases. So COVID was a really scary thing. And we knew that we wanted to try to continue production through this period. And so we brought three camera kits, left them at the edge of the six villages and through contactless drops, began some workshops with the community, um, explaining more about cinematography for a documentary film. And Tangai, my co-cinematographer, ended up shooting, you know, large parts back three of the film. We had had conversations about editing before and how we were going to, sculpt their narrative, what their storyline would look like, we had a really open process um, with the community. And some members of the community, uh, you know, Teju B, for example, who's an executive producer, um, had a family and wasn't able to be out filming as much. But she was really interested in the ways that uh, typical journalism had portrayed their community negatively in the past. And so she was interested in, uh, you know, talking about the edit and being more involved in that they were also involved in the business side and helping us figure out the um, the structure of the film from, from a business side as well.
0: You say you didn't go into this necessarily planning to have a co-production um, with this uh, community. Um, and and you say that the experience of this, making this film kind of changed your way of thinking about how you make films. Um, so when you recognize that you you know you were going to need to forge some different um you know uh, uh, collaborative um connections here uh you know what were you thinking about what were you concerned about and and um and and how did you come around to that
1: um maybe i'll give a quick example which is that when i first one of the first um, times that I was filming with the Uruwao, there was a, a linguist who had come from Berkeley and he was trying to help the Uruwao uh, create a written dictionary for their language, Tupi Kawahiva, which is an endangered language spoken by in the thousands of people left in the world. And there was a massive conversation. The whole village was involved in trying to decide whether they were going to help teach this uh, young man their language, because there was this fear that if they taught it to him, he might own it and they would have to pay to use it somehow. And to me, that was just like this absolute wake up call that this community has so many types of things, intellectual property, cultural property, physical property, you know, extracted from them. And, and this was going to be a really delicate, um, relationship that i was i was trying to embark on with them if we were going to make this and there needed to be real ownership in concrete terms over their story from their side if this was going to be something um, that everybody felt good about and so that that first wake up call for me was really important um, and i think it grew over time really naturally we didn't say okay here's a contract you know sign it we'll be co-production partners it had to grow organically um, But wherever possible, we tried to shift ownership and power into the hands of the people that were on camera and then behind camera by the end of the film.
0: So there's um, another uh, side to this story in that you're filming with farmers who are trying to invade the land of this indigenous community. You profile a farmer named Sergio, who's 49 years old. He's always worked on other people's land. He sees this as an opportunity to get a piece of land for himself. When when you think about that story in isolation, there, there's you can feel sympathetic to his desire to uh, to have his own um, piece of territory, uh, but it's coming at the uh, expense of taking away land from um, from the indigenous people. Um, can you talk about you know you're filming with? Sergio and the other farmers who, uh, who are trying to invade that land.
1: Yeah. Um, the impetus to begin filming with Sergio and Martins, another um, settler, came from Bittete and Nadine, who said journalists come here all the time. We take them on these tours for two weeks. We show them the different places. And, you know, it, it feels pretty cookie cutter. They all feel like they're after the same type of story and they end up getting it. But it takes a lot of time from us. And if we're going to do this story, we want you to try to understand and try to reach out to the people on the other side of this, because they're really open and the impunity with which they operate is actually one of the most difficult parts for, for Bittete and Nadine to grapple with. Um, and so as an American, they, there was sort of this implicit trust. Um, you know, they, they idolize and mythologize the American West and the narratives of colonial conquest there. And so, it, you're saying the the
0: farmers
1: uh, sorry, who, who yes, were not trying to take today, land uh,
0: mythologize the the American West.
1: Absolutely, yes. This idea of manifest destiny um, is the animating principle behind most of their actions. And so, they were pretty public about what they were doing. When we reached out to the Association of Rio Manito. Um, you know, they were writing letters to the editor. They were getting on the news, and they felt really strongly that what they That they had been criminalized that their actions had been celebrated just a generation before when brazil encouraged people to move up into the amazon and clear the forest and now all of a sudden um, you know the tables have turned and they felt really maligned by traditional media and so i said look the social contract we can have is that you will speak for yourself nobody's going to narrate this film there would be no central arbiter of truth Uh, everybody's going to make up their own mind and I'm going to film you digging holes in the hot sun for four hours, same as I'll film you, you know, drawing up maps um, for how you're going to divide the indigenous land. And that was an attractive proposition for them.
0: Um, so, so these two sides, in a way that you're filming the farmers and the indigenous people, they, they aside from your connection between them, they're they're separate they're antagonistic uh, towards each other, even ways that lead to violence um, that you document uh, in the film. Um, so as the years went by that you're covering uh, both sides, did it
1: you know, become more
0: awkward to be moving from one side to the other?
1: It was really hard. Yeah. Um, we were honest with everybody we filmed with that we were filming with multiple sides of this story and that that you are not the only one whose voices can be heard and that was really important to us from a, a security standpoint that if we were if somebody felt that we were not being honest about what we were doing it could become really dangerous um especially for us um i did a lot of the filming with the uh settlers and farmers and invaders um, but at the same time you know one day we would be filming with the police who are out there in the forest searching for these invaders the next week, I might be filming with those very same people. Um, and so we had to have a really strict firewall of information that, that nothing passed from one side to the other that could be advantageous or that could offer some uh, window of insight into what the other side was doing. We also had separate teams. In the Amazon, the, the burning really follows a cyclical pattern. So it's July and August when most of it gets burned. And so we would have multiple film teams working from different sides during the summer so that we could really be sure. And we wouldn't even communicate with each other because I knew if I told another cinematographer what I was doing, uh, it could put them in danger. And so we we took security really seriously, informational security, digital security. Um, it, was, it was super important to us.
0: So uh, you produced the film independently. It's uh, since been acquired by National Geographic. Um, but anyone who looks at this as a National Geographic film, it's a little bit of a misnomer because that wasn't the resources you had while you were making it. So can you talk about what, what were the resources you were working on uh, over these many years of, of filming?
1: Yeah, this was a real labor of love. Uh, you know, At several points, that, that was the only thing in the gas tank was <laughs> this amazing group of people that had bought into the idea of this film and, and believed in it so strongly. Um, for a long time, we were operating off grants. We, I wrote thousands of grant proposals to Sundance and IDA and Catapult and everybody under the sun. And, uh, you know, that kept us going for a, a while. Um, and then we got really lucky and found these three amazing partners, Time Studios, uh, Luminate and Sigrid, who's a producer on the film, who came in with some investment money that helped us Move into post production and get the film through Sundance.
0: You talked about the um, the real risk factors here uh, in filming. Um, as I said before, there there is violence that takes place uh, during the uh, the filming of this. Can you talk a little bit more about you know um, risks that your uh, team might have been at and and how you coped with that?
1: In the film, you know, this is sort of maybe a trigger warning for anybody that hasn't watched it yet, but there, there is a scene where uh, somebody from the Indigenous community is killed, uh, and that really rattled our whole team, obviously, to the core, and it, it came at this really delicate time. Um, I wasn't able to be there when that happened, and I felt really far away, and we had to kind of pause for a while after that and say, we don't know if this is worth it, we don't know... Uh, what this means for everybody, physically, uh, emotionally. What does it mean to keep keep filming? How do we change the way that we're filming if we are going to proceed? Um, and you know, eventually it was it was Bitay Nadina who said, of course this has to happen. This is how we're gonna try to find justice. We're gonna raise holy hell with this film, and and that's gonna be our answer. We're we're not gonna um go silent. That's sort of what they would like us to do. Um but yeah, there, there were several points when, when security became really real. I would have photos of myself sent to myself from phone numbers I didn't know all the time when I was out filming with the invaders. Um, we had, uh, it, was, it was a constant sense of being watched and surveilled. And um, it was, yeah, it's a major concern.
0: Is that to say that the, the people who are sending you photos of yourself are trying to intimidate you to stop filming?
1: Um, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I couldn't say why they would, if if they wanted me to stop. I think it was more that, um, we know who you are. Um, we know that you keep coming back here. Different people had different, uh, levels of appetite for, for me being around, you know, these farmers associations have thousands of members. Um, certain people really thought they believed in the the power of the narrative and, and media to, um, get their message out there that, that they aren't just criminals. I mean, I think they all recognize that what they're doing was illegal, but that there was more to them than this, that they were also hardworking family men, that they were also these other types of things. And some people didn't want anything to do with that. And, and, you know, didn't want cameras around in the meetings, didn't want cameras around at all. Uh, and so I don't know who was sending me those photos, but, um, I can assume it was, it was not to say, (laughs) you're <laughs> please come back and have dinner with my family, <laughs> right? Right,
0: um, uh, you talked about the police, and in the film, uh, there's mention made of, of an indigenous affairs office, a governmental office that is uh, ostensibly supposed to be uh, protecting the land of the indigenous community. Um, th- when Bolsonaro is elected uh, president, and he's you know, famously outspoken um, in his lack of support uh, for the indigenous community. Um, uh, someone tells Nadinia um, that the Indigenous Affairs Office uh, really is not going to have much power to uh, to to do anything to support um, the community, to do the the work that 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 office is. Uh, specifically, supposed to do. What did you witness in the in the you know political dynamics of the, the government officials who are, are supposed to be protecting uh, boundaries and uh, and and protecting the laws of that land?
1: Yeah, that first phone call where Nadine you know, picks up the phone and says, "Can you come help? Can you provide some support?" There's this invasion happening. That really happened just 10 days after Bolsonaro took office. Um, So the chronology of that, the way it happens in the film, is just the way it happens in the movie. And it was a really stark difference that, you know, it's almost like a horror movie. You pick up the phone and the phone line's cut. The police aren't there. Nobody's going to help you. And there was this real sense of abandonment that Nadine and the Uruguay were going to have to start doing the government's job for them in this vacuum of... Of, of the law
0: you, know, you invoke the wild west um as a as a metaphor and it, it doesn't seem far off one of the things that struck me in the film is that we're watching a dynamic of colonial settler violence that has been playing out for hundreds of years um uh in north and south america um and you know, we don't have the ability to see what happened 500 uh, years ago, but what you've captured on camera could, you know, give us an idea of um, some of the motivations and dynamics. And um, I mean, I wonder if that's something that you felt as as you were watching this.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think there are such strong parallels between um, what's happened in the United States, you know, which has been, I think, know an unclassified genocide against indigenous people here and and what's happening in brazil in the present day Um, and you can see that in the way that these settlers and farmers idolize the american west the cowboy hats the paraphernalia visually but just the the way that they speak about it too this sense of entitlement this idea that the land is empty until they've come and demarcated it along these x y coordinates and turned it into private property, something that can be bought and sold. And to them, that is the ultimate virtue, creating something out of nothing. But obviously, inherent to that is the idea that the land is nothing. And obviously, it's not. There are people living there. It it has this, um, you know, ancestral meaning to the Uru. it has plants and flora and fauna. And um, it's this rich, beautiful ecosystem. Um, But I I see so many of these ideas, you know, uh, John Locke writes about the idea that that private property should go to uh, those who can put it to the quote best and highest use. And, and, you know, that just feels so clearly the way that Martin speaks about the land that, that he can do something with it. Therefore he should own it. And, you know, no matter who owns it on paper or whatever the law says, he deserves it because he's going to be working it as a farmer. Um, And I, I hope that Americans and, you know, Europeans and people all over the world who watch this are able to see glimmers and traces of their own countries um you know history and mythology play out in this because i don't think any of us should should get off the hook saying oh this is a story that's happening over there i think it's uh it should resonate with each of us individually
0: so uh, another way in which it makes me think of uh past uh struggles is is the weaponry being brought to bear on uh on either side and we see this young leader, Bitate, um, in the indigenous community who is embracing uh, certain forms of technology like uh, cameras and drones uh, and uh, the Internet. He has, you know, a real flair and appreciation uh, for that technology. Um, we don't see in the film the that community taking on any technology of weaponry. They, they are still patrolling their territory um, with with bows and arrows, um, I, I wonder, you know, what you observed, um, in, in the way they thought about, uh, those tools of defense.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Uruwau are extremely skilled with, uh, a bow and arrow. And I, I, I certainly don't think that a, a firearm would necessarily be an upgrade for them. Um, but you know, gun laws are are relatively strict, becoming less strict under Bolsonaro, stricter than the US for sure, where we're awash in guns. But, um, you know, most of the guns that you see in everyday use in Brazil are, are kind of unregistered in these frontier environments. And so, um, yeah, there's there's also the legal aspect of it that uh, traditional weapons like a bow and arrow are, are legal to be used by the Udo but, you know, Buying a gun and and going through that registration process requires a lot of paperwork and can be really arduous.
0: At the end of the film, uh, there are uh, there's text cards that notes that the these invasions of indigenous territory have doubled uh, in 2021. So, under the Bolsonaro uh, regime of the last three two or three years all the warning signs that you're picking up uh, early in his administration uh, have uh, come to fruition. I, I wonder now, as we begin 2022, you know what your uh, outlook on, on the situation is.
1: It's election year in Brazil in 2022, so Bolsonaro is going to run for re-election next fall. Uh, and I think that's going to determine... Uh, massively the the fate of the rainforest and levels of violence against indigenous people. Um, You know, I think we've seen in Brazilian history that, that there are political levers to reduce this type of violence and reduce the rate of deforestation. We've, you know, governments have done it before in the nineties and on paper, Brazil has pretty strong laws about indigenous territorial sovereignty, but they're just not being enforced. And you know i think that's that's the thing that really needs to start happening people need to get serious about enforcing these laws
0: and as i finish this up i'm i want to ask you know how this experience changed you as a person uh making this film
1: i this film has been a really humbling film to make i think for me um i have had to interrogate myself as a as a filmmaker my own motivations my own um you know desires, the, the ways that we produce films had to be kind of creatively rethought in this particular context. Um, and I think I'm also coming away from it with uh, a huge family of, of people that I, I want to continue working with um, as, as we move forwards, both you know the Uru and, and members of our team in Brazil and this huge family of supporters that we've, we've built in the U.S.
0: Thank Alex Pritz for speaking with me. His documentary The Territory premiered in the Sundance World Documentary Competition. Our Sundance coverage is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films. This is the fifth episode during the festival. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anahousen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.